I love preaching. It's such a privilege to um, get to speak to you all. Um, such a joy from my point of view. And God's just so happy right now. You know, that? He's, just, he's in such a good mood. He's always in a good mood. But he's just happy. You just need to know that he's happy. He's smiling at each and every one of you. He so delights in you. Just as we start, just let me tell you, he loves you. He's happy with you. He doesn't just, doesn't just love you. Sometimes we think love's a kind of a, an ethereal thing. and we, It's not grounded in our experience. He's happy with you. He smiles over you. He looks at you and you make him smile. And he's in a good mood. He enjoys being God. He loves, he loves his job. <laughs> he gets to go to work every day and he loves it. And he comes home and he loves it as well. If that makes sense. However that works with God. Right, to stick the first one up. Thanks, Joe. Um, I've got the, the pleasure this morning. This is um, not part of a series that the church is working through. Um, but I am going to link it into the series. Currently we're looking at honour as a church. We've moved through identity, in, through freedom into honour. And we're going to end up in power soon. Um, and I've had this... I've had areas to do with um, men and women, particularly actually women originally, and then I think more of what I'm going to focus on today might be for the men. Um, I've had this on my heart for a couple of years now, um, and this is the result of brewings that have been in my heart. Um, and they tie in quite nicely with where we're at, because it's all about how we honour each other. Um, so this first slide just outlines a little bit about where we're going. We're going to look a little bit at Genesis 1 and 2, the, um, like the Genesis account of God creating men and women. Um, and then we're going to look a little bit at Ephesians 5, which is the, um, a very classic scripture on, on how men and women relate, um, how that relates to the church. Um, so let's first slide for me. Thanks, Joe. Men and women are made from divine stuff. Divine stuff. We read in the Genesis 1 account that um, God creates things and creates light and dark he creates the universe he creates suns and moons um, and when it comes to the creatures that he creates he involves the things he's already created in the process of creating new things so he speaks to the ground and he says ground bring forth vegetation so there's, there's an element of him creating, speaking, but the, the ground partnering with, and vegetation arrives. And he speaks to the sea and says, sea, going to swarm with fishes, and fishes arrive. And he speaks to the ground again and says, ground, bring forth animals. And the animals come forth. And there's that sense of kind of, of the substance from which they're made. And then he says, and let us make man and woman... In our image. And I get the sense that the substance we are made from is divine. I know in Genesis 2 it does say that actually he made man from the dust. But the text is slightly different there. There's the sense that we are not, we are distinct from the animals. We are different. Right Before we break down men and women, I want you to know that there is something unique and distinct and different about you as opposed to all the other animals. And I'm sure you know this already. But you were created, uh, the ether from which you were created, your, your very substructure 
is, is God. It's like he looked into himself and from himself brought forth humanity. Um, and that puts you in a very unique place in creation and it puts you in a very high place straight away. Um, in the Genesis 2 account, there's two accounts of creation. In the Genesis 2 account, um, he creates animals, he creates plants, but he, when it comes to us, he creates man and then he breathes life, the, the pneuma, the spirit. He breathes that spirit into man. Um, and there's the sense that he's putting, again, he's putting something of himself in there right in the beginning. Um, on the next one. The two Genesis accounts are slightly different in the way they um, depict men and women. In the, Genesis, in the Genesis 1 account, God makes the animals, uh, and there's this kind of crescendo. He creates earth, then vegetables, then birds, then fishes, then you know, animals on the ground, and then he creates man, and it's the generic man and woman. He creates man... In his image, he made them male and female who created them. And there's that sense in the Genesis 1 account. Straight away, he makes humanity male and female. There is something in humanity of the different sexes. Um, In the Genesis 2 account, he makes man first and then puts him to sleep, takes the rib, and from the side makes a woman. Um, And I think there's some people have suggested, and I think we're going to run with it for the morning. It's not too much of a theological stumbling block. Um, you know, don't divide over this. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. It's not critical. But there are some people that suggest, and I quite like this, that there's an essence of, in the Genesis 1 account, there was something of, and possibly even in the, um, in the Genesis 2 account of just the man, there's something of the masculine and the feminine being there, in one person, and then God separates them out. So humanity is, as humanity, humanity is male and female. And that then raises the question, why? Why do we need masculinity and femininity? Why do we need men and women? There are species in the world um, that can reproduce by themselves. I think there are certain sea creatures that have, I think, male and female sex organs and um, hormones, and they just reproduce them in themselves. They don't need another partner. Um, and I think a key element of why we have masculinity and femininity is because, as I said just now, we come from the very stuff of God, and God is not one person. God is Trinity. There was three to God, and yet he's somehow still one. And this is a fundamental concept for where we're going today. But God is, we, we agree with this, don't we? God is one, and yet there was a Trinitarian aspect to him. Somehow, Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct, and yet remain part of a, of a whole. And I don't claim to understand that, but I just agree it's to be true. I believe the same is true of men and women. I believe that when he created humanity, because we reflect him, there needed to be a set of distinct parts that reflect parts of him. And when they come together, there's that sense of the whole. 
And I would suggest that our, our trinity is male, female, and God. That in the same way that Father, Son, and Spirit have always coexisted, there is something in the heart of, very, who, of who God is. If, we, if, if God made man in his image, which Genesis says he did, then there must, be mas- there must be masculinity and femininity in the heart of God for you to reflect him. Um, which means that in no sense is one greater or lesser than the other. And also, I think it means that there is something quite special about the coming together of those because in the coming together, they create a whole who's infinitely greater than the sum of their parts. Less so, perhaps, with Father, Son, and Spirit, because they are intrinsically together. But there is something about when men and women come together with the Holy Spirit, that that whole is infinitely greater than just a man, just a woman, just a male, just a masculine. Um, because we reflect a Trinitarian God. Um, and that becomes important as we're going to go through the rest of the, the rest of the morning, because I think that explains some of our masculinity. I think that explains some of our femininity. I think that explains some of the enemy's attacks on masculinity and femininity. I think that explains some of the enemy's attacks on relationships, particularly between men and women, and on men and women. Um, next slide. I said that there is something about the fact that we are discrete and yet part of the same. In the, um, uh, again, I'm showing my ignorance here, I think it's Hebrew in which the um, Old Testament is written. There are two different words for the way he forms or creates men and women. He forms the fishes, he forms the animals, he forms the birds, and he forms men, as in... um, in the Genesis 2 accounts, when he creates Adam first. He creates man, and he forms man. And then he brings all the animals. He then says, it's not, and we'll come on to this later on, it's not good for man to be alone. Something's not quite right here. This, doesn't truly, this, can't, this can't truly reflect a Trinitarian God by himself, this Adam creature. So we need to help a fit for him. So in the Genesis 2 account, actually, God creates Adam first, and then he brings all the animals forward and asks Adam to basically select a helper. Can't find a helper. We'll come on to that word later on. Don't get, don't get stuck up on that one. Um, and he puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from his side, and fashions a woman. Now, the word fashioned is very different to formed. Formed is squeezed. You slap together a man. You stick together clay and you stick it together and you... Bish, there's your bloke. You just made a man. When it comes to a woman, there's a forming of a woman. It's a very different word. It's um, you take a material that already exists and you fortify it. That's what the word actually means, the fashioned. To take an existing material and to fortify it. So without any element of competitiveness... There is an argument that says he took man and he improved is the wrong word, but he, he did something else to it. 
And if I say improved, that doesn't mean that there's a... This isn't a battle of the sexes. There's no... Cause that, cause we can't, but there is an element of that in that word. There's an element of he took what something was and he did something else to it to make it even more delightful, even more something else. So even in the creation account, and this I think is genuine because this I think we see in history, even in the creation account, ladies, women... There is something special about you. Genuinely, something is different and unique and exquisite. And I can't put words on it, but I think women in the house, you know it, and men, you probably feel it too. They are different. Women are not. Women have not been slapped together. Women are formed and created. And blokes, it doesn't offend me that someone thinks I'm slapped together, actually. That kind of makes me think, yeah, come on, bit of mud. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I can't imagine any of you ladies would feel good about that being the way you were made. But the minute I tell you, you are just fashioned, that honours you, that esteems you, that raises you up. That makes me think, yeah, that's, that fits. Um, and I, I, I say this because I want to... Right at the start, say there are differences. Um, As a church, at some point in the future, we are going to be delving deeper into what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, as far as um, roles and responsibilities in the church go. And right at the outset, it's important that we say we are different. And we have to allow our differences. Now, straight away, that leads to an application. Boys, men, we cannot treat our women as if they were a bloke. I hope you know that. In general, I find that I cannot enter into blokey banter with my female friends in the way that I do with my male friends. It, it just it, They respond differently. It means different things to them. It's not appropriate I cannot talk to my lady friends, and in particular, the, you know, the important women in my wife, in my life, my wife. I cannot speak to her in the same way that I would speak to a bloke friend. It would be inappropriate. She would receive it very differently, and I would not be honouring her. So, one application of this is, gents and ladies and women, be aware that we are different, and it's okay to speak differently to each other. It's okay that we hear things differently. It's okay that when a woman says something, another woman hears what she means because she's hearing through the women ears, and a man hears something different because he's hearing through male ears. And we have to learn how to communicate with each other because we are different, because we are not the same. We have to learn how to, I have to learn how to speak woman, and women have to learn how to speak man, or else we will constantly be miscommunicating. And that's not a fault in creation. God didn't make a a mistake there. God did that because in doing so, I embrace something of the Godhead that without a woman I cannot embrace. I experience something of the Godhead that without interacting with a woman I cannot experience. So it's vitally important that I understand women and specifically how to relate to my woman, my wife, Because 
I experienced something of God in that. The next application, and this is where it's gone so wrong in, 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 in history in general, because we are different, because men were slapped together and formed and women were fashioned, historically, if I use my difference, or if, if either sex uses their difference as an oppression, then it goes wrong. And we know that. If I use my strength in any way to oppress women, the results are hideous and vile and evil. And as a generalisation, biologically, phys- physically, I grow stronger. As a generalisation, mentally, verbally, relationally, dialogically, whatever the word, how you speak, how you relate, communicate, communicatively, women grow, girls grow stronger. Biologically, at a young age, girls' ability to maintain conversations, understand words, talk to each other, develops at a faster rate than boys. Boys' ability to run, jump, fight, smash things grows at a faster rate than girls. They are supposed to be that way. But if boys then use their strength to oppress women, terrible things happen. Likewise, if women, if you use your relational abilities, your words, your quickness of thought sometimes, your subtle nuances of thought and word to downplay men to oppress men, to belittle men, that is equally vile. So the challenge right from the outset is we have differences, but let's use those differences to raise each other up. Because women, I need your relational understanding. And women, you need my strength, you need my competitiveness, you need all these things that stereotypically, and it's not an across-the-board thing, there are some women that are stronger than me and I'm probably better relationally than some women. It's, I mean, it's just... It, but as a general, broad generalisation, those pitfalls, if they, if they get fallen into, can bring us down, and that's not God's intention. I'll move on. Next one. I love this. this, this, this I'm really excited about this one. This is one of my favourite ones of the morning. In the Genesis 3 account of the fall... Um, Regardless of what happens in the garden, who eats what first, when God then talks to them both, God um, says some things to them after, his, after, his, um, after they've eaten, after Adam and Eve have eaten the apple. God speaks to them both and he talks to the snake and he talks to the man and he talks to the woman. What he says to the snake is I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. This is her offspring. And you shall bruise his heel. Now what this means is that right in Genesis 3, in the garden, women, you have a unique relationship to Satan different from men there is not enmity between the enemy and humanity there is enmity between the enemy and women you've only got to look through history to see that that has been played out who has been more oppressed historically men or women 
every time it's women. In most societies, who is more oppressed? The flip side of that, who has... Yeah, I'm going to go for this. Who has the biblical mandate to crush Satan's head? The women. And then their offspring. Now, it's, it's all of us. But because there is that enmity between women and the snake, women, I believe you have a discreet and distinct mandate for spiritual warfare. That's not to say that you are any better at it than men or that men you don't have an ability to engage in spiritual warfare. But at women, I believe you have a a uniqueness about you in the way that you warfare that the enemy knows, which is why he has spent all of history downplaying women, oppressing women. Because when he knows when you girls, when you realise what you have in you, he starts to run away. So my exhortation in this is girls... You have something that we, the church, we, the world, desperately need. If you feel any sense of in you about injustice, it says that the enmity is between the woman and her offspring. Traditionally, who is it? Is it the male bear or the mummy bear that is going to rage if you come near their cubs? It's the mummy bear. You do not want to come between a mother and her, and her infants because there is something ferocious and tenacious and downright powerfully scary about a mum on the rampage looking after her kids. And this verse says that there is something in women that is... about anyone that tries to get in the way of her children. And men, we, I think it's biological. Men, we don't have that in quite the same way. We are protectors. But there's something here for you girls to embrace... You are your role in this church, your role in the church universal in spiritual warfare. I think the ra of a mummy bear looking after her cubs is the ra of you spiritually defeating the enemy. So I want to encourage you and um, exhort you to, if you feel that in you, believe that it is there for a reason and step into it. Believe that your prayers are effective. Believe that your fight for injustice is there biologically, spiritually, at the dawn of creation. Believe that your, if you've got something in your heart that goes, oh, that, is, that is not okay, I, I cannot accept that. Go with that, because that is there for a reason. The world needs that. The world needs women to step up into that, because I believe it's there at the dawn of creation. Men, we can pray for our wives in this. If we know that Satan's got a special hatred of the girls, then we can cover them with our prayers. We can protect them. We can be wise to that. We will touch this later on, but I'm going to bring it in at this point. Men, application for us on this, we have responsibility to close down any lines of attack that the enemy might bring against our wives. And I'm going to say this specifically in the area of sexual sin. Because we're going to look later on in Ephesians 5 that in the same way that Christ is the head of the church and then the church is, her, is his body, men symbolically are the head and women are the body. 
Now, Corinthians tells us that any sec- most sins are committed outside your body, but a sexual sin is committed against your own body. You tarry those things together, a sexual sin committed against your own body, when your wife is your body, will affect your wife. This is not a condemning word, but this is a, let's smell the coffee, what's going on here. If Satan wants to get at the girls, and we know as blokes that the area of sexual temptation, for some reason it's stronger for us than it often is for the girls, but this is partly it. Because when you've got, especially when you've got yourself a wife, she becomes your body. A sexual sin committed against your body, which is now her, will affect her. This is what the enemy has been trying to do since the beginning. So be aware of it. This is not a condemning, sort yourself out. You have everything you need in Christ already. You're not a sinner. You you are righteous now. um, You've been made new. You don't have those desires anymore. But the enemy will try and convince you that you do. He will lie to you because he wants to attack both you and your girl. And men, I want you to be aware of that. Just in the back of, just be, be aware of his plans. Right, next one. So this feels like heavy, but I'm, I've got the burden for this. I like this one. This is also a fun one. Um, in the Genesis 2 account, he, um, God makes the man and then says, Ah, oh, there's not a helper. That's the word we've interpreted in, in English. There's not a helper fit for him. Um, so then God. Um, in the the Genesis 2 account, brings all the animals out from the ground, brings them in front of Adam, um, and Adam names them, he calls them, um, and there's something of a calling out in that naming. It's not just an identifying. There's a, you are this because I called you to be this, as it were. Um, But there was no helper fit for him. So then God put Adam to sleep, and out came created woman. Um, and I think that word helper um, has often caused people, especially the girls, to stumble because it feels like it feels like you're um, the little one at home, or it can be into, can have the word helper in this language can have connotations of the the little woman at home while the man goes out and does the business, you know, she who cooks and bakes and looks after the children while the man does the stuff, and you just need to know that is a cultural nonsense when it comes to this actual word. This word appears, this word helper appears 18 times in the Old Testament. Sorry, 22 times in the Old Testament. 18 of these refer to God as being Israel's help. Three times it's just generic someone is helping someone else. Would be four times. No, 22, so four times. But the word helper as it relates to God God is doing things like he is rescuing his people, he's saving his people, he is protecting them, shielding them. You are our shield, God, you are my help. God, you are my rescuer, come to me quickly. God, you're my shield, hallelujah that you save me. God, you make my heart glad. God, you deliver me. <laughs> there is nothing about the woman, the meek and wild girl in this description. Um, and again, you see this, the oppression of women throughout history. You see, you know, think back to, wasn't that long ago in this culture, when the woman was the stay-at-home, the woman was the, the little 
You know, there's even somewhere in the Bible where it says women is the, the weakest sex or something, which is, again, um, we're not going to go into that, but that's, uh, that's an, a misinterpretation. That doesn't mean kind of what it says it means. And then every so often you see these characters in history that come up and rise up and say, no, I am femininity as it's meant to be. As I was thinking, I was thinking like Joan of Arc. Whoa! Boudicca, who's local to this, this place, Chelmsford. Women that rise up and say, I am a deliverer, I am a protector, I'm a warrior, I'm a fighter, I, I rescue, I save, I protect. This is what it means to be a helper. Um, I love um, how Tolkien puts it in some of his um, Lord of the Rings trilogies. There's this character, Eowyn, who is a princess, a, a daughter of a king, um, and Aragorn, who is the kind of the big man character in the story. Um, he says to her at one point, you have some skill with a blade. Eowyn says, the women of this country learned long ago those without swords can still die upon them. I don't want to get emotional without goodness. I fear neither death nor pain. Aragorn, what do you fear, my lady? A cage to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them and all chance of valour is gone beyond recall or desire. Aragorn says, you are a daughter of kings, a shield maiden of Rohan. I do not think that will be your fate. The very end of the story, the, apart from Sauron, the biggest baddie who gets, who's intrinsically linked with the ring, there's this witch king who is this biggest, baddest dude flying on these great dragons, um, the leader of the nine baddies, and he's got the, we're at the final battle. And then Eowyn again steps up. The, the witch king says, hinder me. Eowyn tries to fight him. She's, she's pretending to be a man in battle. Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. And then Mary, one of the creatures, heard in all sounds of the hour the strangest. It seems that Durnhelm, this, this is Eowyn pretending to be a man, laughed. And the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You are looking upon a woman. Eowyn am I. Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and king. Begone if you be not deathless. For living or dark or undead, I will smite you if you touch him. I am a woman. Get in my way and I will kill you. That. Whew, that is femininity. There is a strength in there that we, the church, and the world needs to see. This, that's what it means to be a helper. Men, you need to hear that, and women, you need to hear that too. That's what it means to be a helper. So if, 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 God, if women are helpers to us, then women are quite literally God to us. As men, your wife, women around you, they are God to you. There wasn't a helper, reed, saviour, protector, defender, shield, um, rescuer. So God created this character to be with Adam. Men, if you don't appreciate that, if you don't realise that this is who she is to you, 
look on the next slide for me. If you don't recognize men, that women are God to you in this, then you refuse part of yourself because back in the garden, Eve was taken from Adam. This is part of this Trinitarian thing again. Eve was taken from Adam. So in refusing to accept women as this, men you are refusing part of yourself. She came from your side. This is, I've heard, um, I think Mark Driscoll says this, he loves having cuddles with his wife and he loves having her kind of just under the arm in there. And he says, I love having her at my side because that's where she came from and that's where she belongs. She came from your side to come back into you, with you, next to you, is the most natural thing in the world. Don't refuse women to you. Don't refuse God's help to you. Don't refuse to acknowledge part of the Godhead represented here on earth. If women are displaying part of the Trinitarian nature of God, then they are displaying in their strength, in their beauty, in their valour, part of who God is. Don't deny part of who the Godhead is. And, and girls, do you realise the incredible calling on your lives? Without you being fully you, the world is going to miss out on an aspect of who God is. If we're made in his image, if we are called to reflect God to this world, without women being uniquely women, the world will, will miss out on half of, who God, of how God chose to reflect himself, how God chose to represent himself. So we need you girls to be uniquely you. Likewise, Genesis 2.24, next one, Joe. Um, Adam's just seen Eve, and his jaw's basically dropped. He's been looking at cows and bulls and sheep and geese and dogs and rats and mice and snakes, and his jaw hasn't dropped in the slightest. He sees this woman... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, which means pursue hard after his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One aspect of this is she came from your side. There is something in men that want that back. I want, I want my other half back. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to chase this. I'm going to try to get it back. Because it, it fits. She fits next to me. She fits with me. So this thought of pursuing hard after, this holding fast, is an active pursuit. It's a chasing after. It's a proactive getting. And women in the room, I know you want that from your guys. Men in the room, intrinsically you want that because you are made in the image of someone who is the most romantic being that's ever lived to hold fast or pursue hard after reflects the character of God um, in Ephesians 5 we'll get there in a second we're told that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Um, now, I know that Jules wants me to romance her. Jules is my wife. I know she wants me to romance her. Something in her heart needs to be pursued, needs to be sought after, needs to be chased. Needs, I, she wants me to be active in my getting of her, my pursuing, my seeking after her, my following after her. Um, and honestly, sometimes I, th- I think to myself, I don't know what that means. What do you mean, romance? I don't know. And I get all caught up in, I get all kind of caught up in roses and dates and meals and grand gestures. And I get confused in myself. I think, I don't know how to romance you. What is the romance? I don't know. I need to go and look in a book how to romance my wife, right? Chocolates, flowers, roses. No, 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 no. The essence of this romance, this pursuing after, is reflected in what God did. Um, This is a, I, I found this poem somewhere and it reflects part of um, God's romance of, of us as humanity. In, in this poem, it's God's romance of a woman. This is God. I am your future and I am your plans. I am your hero and you are my man. You are my beauty, my lover, my prize. For you I endured, for you I have cried. For you I have fought and have battled and won. For you I have triumphed and have overcome. I threw down my enemies. I crushed them and roared. How dare you touch her, for she is mine. I ran from the heavens. I rode on the wind. Light was my covering, passion my wings. I came to you quickly to save you from pain. I rescued you powerfully to rise once again. Out of the ashes of shame and of fear, into the light a new day is here. A day of rejoicing and laughter and joy, a day of freedom and a day of hope, the day that will never end or perish or fade, the day that begins the rest of your tale. You're coming home, my girl, I'm drawing you home to the place I made for you, the place where your throne sits so close to me, I can see your face. I love you, my daughter, I think you're amazing. I love you, my daughter, your beauty and grace. I love you, my daughter. I will always be yours, your loving father and friend and brother and Lord. You, we, as humanity, have been pursued. And to pursue hard after is in the very essence of who God is. So men, if you don't think that you have romance in you, you are wrong biblically, categorically, and foundationally, because you are made in the image of the most awesome romance that the world has ever seen. And your girls need you to romance them. Your wives want you to pursue them. And actually, as men... You want to romance them. You want to pursue them. There's something in the male heart, the masculine heart, that rises up to this, that delights in the the challenge of this, that delights in the pursuit, that delights in the sense of, I'm going to get, I'm going to show that I love, I'm going to convey love for, I'm going to esteem you in the pursuit my pursuit of you raises you up. My pursuit of you honours you, and it's my delight. It does my soul good to honour you. Because that is what God does to us. God raises us up. God pursues us to honour us. The very pursuit of God bestows honour on us. 
the fact that God loves us says that I am worthy and I am worth something. So it does your masculine heart good to pursue and it does the feminine heart good to be pursued. Next slide. Oh, hang on, next one. Uh, Yes, we'll we'll go on this one. Um, Another element of this, if, just as a sideline, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and become united with his wife. There is an element in this of um, men and women, when you're with your family... Your, your parents created a unit, a, a new small reflection of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Um, and when a boy and a girl come together, they create a whole new reflection of the Godhead, a new family unit. Um, and there needs to be a separating with what went before. Um, there needs to be a leaving behind of previous family ties. This is just really applicable. There needs to be a leaving behind of family ties. There needs to be a cutting off from the parents and a moving into something new. So men and women, you, you cannot successfully create a new marriage if you are still tied too much to your parents. And parents, your kids cannot successfully create a new marriage if you try and keep them in your unit because they need to go and make their own unit. So there has to be a freeing, a releasing, so that a new reflection of the Godhead can be formed in men and women. Right, next one. Uh, Move on, next one. Um, In Ephesians 5, we are told that um, Christ is the head of the wife, so the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And this is a fascinating one. To, to love your wife is to love yourself. Or flip that. Blokes, if you want to love yourselves, you've got to love your wives. Bizarrely. Possibly counterculturally. In order to love someone else, you need. In order to love yourself best, you need to love someone else. The role of the head is to look after the body, to make sure the body is fed, watered, nurtured. Next slide. This may not apply to you. This may. Men, how many of you, either literally with your time or in your thinking, will spend more time? looking after your own body than looking after your wife or allowing your wife to look after her body. Because if she is your body then and you want to look after your body, her, then she needs to be your first priority. Are you giving her space to go to the gym are you giving her space to be a woman not just a mother with toddlers around her ankles are you giving her space to get time with God are you giving her space to eat properly are you giving her space to read are you giving her space 
to do the things that she needs to look after herself. Because if she is okay, then you are okay because she is your body. And that is countercultural in the world um, and sometimes counterintuitive just in our thinking. We obviously need to look after ourselves, but there is something spiritually significant about looking after your wife and that directly benefiting you, the man. Um, to the extent that you take that to the kind of logical extreme, almost, somehow, if I want to be fit, then I must send my wife to exercise. Kind of. Because that's what it says. It says, oh, I'm the head and she's the body. So there is something... I don't profess to fully understand this, but this is what it says. If she is my body, then my wife being fit will somehow affect my fitness in some way, albeit spiritually. Here's another big one. Um, and this is definitely countercultural, certainly in the history of this country. How many of you men think that your job is to have the dream and the vision and the wife's job is to, is to support yours? Culturally, I think that's often the case. Biblically, it appears to be the other way around. Biblically, what Christ does is he comes up underneath. It's Christ is our head and we are, we are his body. What Christ does is he comes underneath and supports our dreams, our visions, and he releases us into our things. Men, are you releasing your women, your wives, into their dreams? Are you prioritizing their dreams over your own? Are you saying, honey, what's your vision? What's your goal? Because I will do everything I can to support you because you are my body and if I look after you, then I will be happy. Or are you saying, this is my dream, bring the kids. Because biblically, you're not looking after your own body. Which is a daft thing to do. So let's use some common sense. Let's look after our wives. They are our body and we are happier um, application for women you are the body of Christ and the body is something that's very tied up with their female um, self-awareness but Christ has said about you girls about us as humanity and therefore you girls that you are his body so the next time you look at your body and you don't like it look up and look at your head and then see what he thinks of his body which is you because I promise you he loves his body which is you There is, I think this, this can release women from a, um, an undue or a, a burden about their appearance. And a, when they realize the smile that Christ has on his body, which is them. Your body is delighted in by your head. Who is Christ. And I hope that frees you to begin to delight in your own body more because it is delighted in by your Christ.
because you are his literal, his body, we're told. The last one, next slide. Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. I love the fact that there's a washing with water through the word here, and there's so many applications, just little applications for this one. Um, It's no surprise to me that we, the bride, are washed with words. Because for you girls, words are really important. What people say to you can bring you down, and what people say to you can raise you up. Words are really critical. So an immediate application is men and women, be aware that as you speak to each other, what you say carries creation power. Think of Adam naming the animals. There was a a declarative nature to that. What, What you speak has power. You can cleanse each other. You can wash each other with just what you say to each other. Um... Is there another slide after this one, Joe? I think there is, isn't there? Yeah, just the next, just the next one. Um, particularly for women, the area of words is an attack. Conversations you have with each other, things people say, um, can be an area where you're brought down. And the flip side of that, it can be an area where you are raised up. I know my wife, I know Jules responds very positively to my words to her, to what I say to her to the things that I say, to how I say the things that I say. Um, And men and women in general, we need to be proactive in understanding that this is important, that you have creative power in what you say, and you can raise up or you can bring down, but I encourage you to raise each other up, particularly men with your wives. Um, The word is the truth. Washing with water through the word. The word is also symbolic of the truth. Men, I encourage you, Be proactive in speaking truth over your wives. Be proactive in washing her with the truth daily of this is who who you are, this is what you are, this is what the Bible says about you. Um, Allow them to have... Word is also Christ. In John we're told that in the beginning was the word. So word also relates to Christ. So again, men and girls... Make time to spend time with Christ. Because in that washing, in that being in with Christ, there will be that sense of washing, that sense of cleansing. What do we do when we wash? We get rid of the impurities. We get rid of the bits that we don't want. We get rid of the dead bits, the old bits. So, men, you can get rid of the old bits by speaking truth over your wives. Women, you can get rid of the old bits by spending time with Christ and letting his water, letting his truth just wash over you, tell you what you're, who you are. Um, embracing your true identity as a, as a daughter, as a, um, as a warrior. And the same for you men. As you spend time in the word, spend time with God, you can embrace your true identity as a romancer, um, as someone who intrinsically reflects part of the Godhead in a unique way. Um, That's it for me. Thank you.